year to June 29 next year will be a holy year dedicated to St. Paul. And um, uh, not many of us know about that. So I thought I would switch topics to give you um, uh, a, a head start on the holy year dedicated to St. Paul. And what I have uh, offered for you first are the, the, signific the significant dates uh, related to St. Paul in the Roman calendar. And this is the same in the old calendar or the new calendar. It's totally identical. Actually, you'll find that um, the old calendar and the new calendar are, are almost, almost the same, except for a few saints that have been uh, no longer uh, been given obligatory mention in the Mass. And, um, and we count the Sundays a little differently. But other than that... So all these, all these significant dates are the same in the old calendar, the new calendar. Pardon me. June 29th is the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. And November 18th is the memorial of the dedication of the two basilicas in Rome, one inside the city, one outside. The basilicas of, of Saint Peter in the Vatican and the basilica of Saint Paul outside the walls. Just last month, we celebrated the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. And in a few days, in a very few short days, I think on Friday, right? Is that right? Today's the 19th. So on Friday is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. Now that might seem a little strange, but at the very end, if I've done my job, you'll understand why that, why that might make perfect sense. Um... And what I have for you here is the the, the propers for the mass uh, for the conversion for the feast of the conversion of Saint Paul. And if you need the translation, um, you could ask Sabatino, or you could cheat and just click the page for the other side. So what I'd like to do with you is a very simple first exercise and read synchronously the four accounts of the conversion of St. Paul. Uh, most of us are only familiar with those that appear in the Acts of the Apostles. 
And you can see that when we celebrate the Feast of St. Paul's conversion, um, we're reading only from the Acts of St. We're only reading from the Acts of the Apostles um, in the first reading. And so that may be, probably, that's the, the information contained therein is what we um, only have in mind when we think of the conversion. So it, this is a, an old trick that um, I didn't invent of just lining up these accounts. And I haven't, I haven't switched texts. I haven't changed the wording. All I did is I, I plugged in these four sections, three from Acts and from Galatians 1. And I just added space to slide down text so that it matched up um, the, the continuation of the narrative in the other um, readings. That makes sense. Does that not make sense? Does that make sense? All right. Uh, there's a great book called The Synopsis of the Holy Gospels, um, which does that for all four Gospels. Just lines them up and just slides text down until it catches up to the event. And um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great great resource. And it's um, a good first way of, of trying to understand um, sacred scripture, especially when, when the genre of it is, um, is historical. So we'll begin with Galatians 1 and a, and a bit of a preface. Now I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human being, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and progressed in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my race since I was even more a zealot for my ancestral traditions. <coughs> and then here we'll pick up, and I'll, I'll just slide over to Acts 26. Actually, I won't. I'll slide over to Acts 9. Now, Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. So first of all, St. Paul here is in Jerusalem. This is where the, his, his journey begins. He's on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem. And the high priest and the council of elders, um, uh, in a sense, commissioned him, but at his behest, they commissioned him to Damascus to take care of the Christians who were there. And we can see that the, um, the, uh, the, the, the purposefulness of St. Paul um, doesn't really admit of exaggeration. He's still breathing murderous threats. So when we look at the map and we try to figure out, well, okay, here's Jerusalem down here, right near the Dead Sea. And Damascus actually isn't that far away. Damascus is, is further south than Beirut. You know, so from Haifa, from Mount Carmel, you can see, you can see Lebanon from, from Mount Carmel. Uh, Beirut's not that much further north. But Damascus is inland, east of Mount Hermon, um, and, and actually close by. Damascus is right here. Beirut's up here. And then we have Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, 
So Nazareth is here, the, the Valley of Jezreel is here. Um, and so to get from Jerusalem to Damascus, there were four different roads, basically. You could cross over uh, the Judean Desert and go up the Jordan uh, River Valley. You could go north, straight through um, uh, Samaria. Um, and then at, once you get up here, there's a, there's a diagonal road uh, that... Uh, brings you either just underneath the Sea of Galilee or above the Sea of Galilee, or you can go straight north and then cut across to Damascus. Um, I tried to look it up on Google, but um, they said they could not calculate the driving distance between Jerusalem and Damascus. But MathQuest was a little better. Um, uh, it, it's, only, it's only 33 miles and 41 minutes from Jerusalem, Maryland to Damascus, Maryland. <laughs> so, you might think of that as a pilgrimage. And then, actually, apparently, Google does not have... Google does not um, either have or broadcast the streets of uh, Israel, so it's just a big blank. Um, but the Israeli uh, transit or Israeli national road system does have their road map, um, but it's different roads. <laughs> All right, so he's on his journey. As he was nearing Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. You can see that. You can go across. Verse 6 of Acts 22 says the exact same thing. Acts 26, uh, Acts 22 says the same thing. Acts 26 says, at midday, along the way. Um, now here he's talking to um, uh, King Agrippa. So that's why he's making a reference to a king. Obviously, at the narrative of Acts doesn't just simply repeat it for the sake of repeating it, but in, in chapter 26, um, St. Paul is actually addressing someone else. At midday along the way, O king, I saw a light from the sky brighter than the sun shining, shining around me and my traveling companions. So he's not traveling alone, he's traveling in a group. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew... Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He fell to the ground in Acts 9. They all fell to the ground in Acts 26, you'll notice. Obviously, he fell to the ground and stayed on the ground. And I said, who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Or with the added, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting in Acts 22. Yeah. Now here's another interesting little, little twist. My companions, this is in Acts 22, my companions saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. And in Acts 9, verse 7, it said, the men who were with me, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but could see no one. Um, not terribly troubling. There are other instances where 
Um, uh, at the baptism of our Lord, where uh, something was heard, but Jesus heard the words. There was a noise, so it may very well be that they all they all saw the light. Notice there's no mention of a horse anywhere, right? No mention of a horse. But so they fell down. Right, I've got the painting too. Um, and the others got up, but Saint Paul obviously was he not just, he didn't just see the light and hear a sound, but he heard a voice and someone was talking to him, and he was captivated, not and actually in a sense, paralyzed, um, and in the end, blinded by all of this. He uniquely was the recipient. The others were affected, but not, um, but not directly. After the reply comes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord then says, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In Acts 26, um, we hear more of it. Get up now and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of what you have seen of me and what you will be shown. I shall deliver you from this people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may obtain forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been consecrated by faith in me. There are two particular ways in which um, this reference to darkness to light from the power of Satan to the power of God are, are particularly at work. Namely, he's on his way to Damascus. Damascus is perhaps, it's certainly at least one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Um, Oh, well over 4,000 years of continuous history. Um, at times that it was conquered, but it's not as though it was a city that was ever barren for a century and then eventually was rebuilt. It's, it's basically continuously inhabited. And it's a place where by that time, there were four groups of people who made up the populace. There were Syrians, um, whose religions were... Um, more than perverse, uh, even um, uh, yeah, I, I respect you too much to describe exactly what, what they did, but between, between the rituals um, concerning uh, uh, appeasing the god and killing of, of newborn children, uh, and the the, you could say the, the temple prostitution that they practiced. Um, it, was a, it was a city whose, whose wickedness uh, is difficult to exaggerate. Now, there are the Greeks that were there, too, um, and they, mel they, they blended quite well with the Syrians. Romans were there in, in smaller number, but were very powerful. Um, <coughs> Although at this point, this is probably the year 36, and it's right about this time that, um, that the Roman garrison was actually conquered and, and kicked out of Damascus. Uh, the capital of that area had already moved to Antioch, um, and it was um, Arabians who had actually uh, pushed north 
and actually um, conquered um, Damascus. Or not really conquered, but it absorbed Damascus. And it's not exactly clear if that had yet, if that had taken place at this time. It doesn't really affect us too much because it was the Jews who occupied a small section of Damascus um, that uh, is the reason why Paul was headed there because the Christians were causing trouble among the Jews. And actually at that time, they weren't even called Christians yet. We'll read about that a little bit later, that in Antioch is the first time where they were called Christians. But in any event, it was these Jews who believed in Jesus that were the ones that Paul were intent on, um, on arresting and bringing back to Jerusalem in chains. It wasn't just the Damascenes. That was the way that the Greeks and Syrians liked to call themselves, the Damascenes. It wasn't just the Damascenes that were in the grip of the devil. But it was, it really was the, 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 the trickery of the devil that caused um, Christ to be identified as um, one who cast out demons in the name of, of Beelzebul. But we'll get to that a little bit later, too, and how St. Paul's preaching reveals um, what made the difference. So, we continue. Turn the page. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was unable to see, and neither ate nor drank. Already I'm going to tell you that my purpose is to help you observe the season of Lent in a way which is informed by this experience of, of, of Paul. Uh, and I already noticed the detail. All of this took place. He saw the light, the bright light, brighter than the sun. What happens when that happens? You can't see, actually. And his eyes were closed. When he got up from the ground, he tried to open it. He opened his eyes and he couldn't see anything. And so for the next three days, he's blind. And he refuses to eat and refuses to drink. Now, we know that he's, he was near Damascus, right? At midday, along the way, drew, drawing near Damascus, nearing Damascus. From the, from the way the narrative runs... Uh, it's not um, easy to conclude, but it seems that a lot of people conclude that he was brought into Damascus by the end of that day, which would mean he couldn't have been more than about a five-hour walk, actually a five-hour stumble from Damascus. The gates would have been closing uh, at sundown. Um, it's estimated, perhaps, that this took place in November or at least at that time of year. And realize he's, he's being led around, um, he's totally blind, and he's, and he's being led by companions. It's not as though they were, you know, walking or, you know, let alone jogging at a good clip to try to get into Damascus before the gates were closed. So, because of that, it's estimated that there's a little um, uh, rise in the, in, the, in the roads that come up to Damascus uh, just as they pass Mount Hermon right here to the left, which is snow-covered a good bit of the year. It's quite beautiful. And so there's a little rise in the road, and then it's a downhill walk into Damascus. Um, on the way in, it, uh, the details don't necessarily matter, but 
uh, they wouldn't have gone in the gate of God, which was the southern gate of Damascus, um, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, namely, that's not where the Jewish community would have been. The Jewish community wouldn't have been in the in the seat of power. It would have been on the eastern side of the city of Damascus. So they, in order to save time, instead of trying to get through all the crowds, more than likely they went around the eastern outside wall of Damascus and in, into the eastern gate uh, in order to in order to get to Straight Street, which is where he was uh, directed. The only reason why those might be important is because we. We don't have a pilgrimage site. We don't have a particular place which is venerated as the location of the conversion. But there are a variety of people that have commented as to where it, where it might have taken place, or at least roughly, depending on if he was on the road coming from due south, which would have come from the southern uh, crossing of the Jordan River, or from the other road, which would have uh, brought him across the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street, go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he may regain his sight. So in, in Saul's not yet quite three days of blindness and um, neither eating nor drinking, he's received another vision, at least one more vision, a vision of Ananias laying hands on him. Seems that the vision's already taken place. God has already given that vision to Saul, and then God informs Ananias, this is what you have to do. Because um, I've already set all this in motion. Ananias doesn't want to go. Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord... So, we know Ananias is a, is a believer. He's, he's a member of the way. That's what we were called 2,000 years ago. Before it was called the Catholic Church... Before we were called Christians, we were members of the way. Ananias is, is, is already one of us. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been afraid to go Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Saul, my brother... The Lord has sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 22, Ananias, the devout observer of the law, highly spoken of, came to Paul and said, stood there and said, Saul, my brother, regain your sight. And that very moment I regained my sight and saw him. But back in Acts 9, it gives us the little added... Uh, physical detail immediately things like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight he got up and was baptized and when he had eaten he recovered his strength now here's where I want to pay attention to the, to the elapse of time uh, it's quite obvious that he was baptized immediately there, was, there didn't even need to be much of a 
conversation, any kind of catechesis. Doesn't look like there was even any paperwork or any envelopes exchanged. <laughs> because that happened before he ate. Before he even ate, he was baptized. I might add, uh, as we go through, and obviously I'm going to be sharing little details about the old Mass, which is actually the new Mass. Um, one, one observance of Lent that you might consider, unless you're, you're already, you know, rubbing gravel into your head for breakfast every morning, is, um, is um, keeping the old fast. I don't mean the fasting of, obviously, um, the, the, the traditional observance of Lent is to fast every day, except for Sundays. Um, Pope St. Gregory can calculate it because Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, those are days of Lent, regardless of what uh, some calendars might say. They're even more intensely penitential than the days of Lent. But St. Gregory saw you at six weeks <coughs> times seven, that's 42 days. You minus the six Sundays, that leaves you with 36 days of Lent when you can fast because Western Christians didn't fast on Sundays. Eastern Christians didn't even fast on Saturdays. That's why their Lent begins even earlier. But St. Gregory observed, well, we have 36 days to, to fast then, and that's one-tenth of the year, so that's our tithe. So that's how we'll leave it. Well, it was subsequent popes that said, oh, we need to have 40 days of fasting. So that's where we came up with Ash Wednesday, tacking on four more days before the first Sunday of Lent. And the observance of Lent universally was to fast every day, which means only one meal after Vespers. Now, over the course of centuries, um, Vespers became uh, earlier and earlier. <laughs> and then the meal was permitted to be taken before Vespers. Um, and owing to the Benedictine uh, and universal Christian uh, concession that if, you know, if you're, if you're not able to work, not able to pray, not able to be charitable, then you know, have a bit of bread to keep you going. Um, that's where we come up with one meal and two that don't add up to a meal, which sounds like um, uh, a normal day of eating for most human beings. <laughs> In any event, I'm not talking about that fast. I mean, just for let, keep the old Eucharistic fast, which means before you receive Holy Communion that day, don't eat or drink anything. Make that the first thing you consume in the day. Now, if you're going to evening mass, you know, uh, don't don't push yourself too much. But just think about that. He, he his his vision was restored, and and before and after three days of eating nothing and drinking nothing, after having walked. Now, mind you, this walk from Jerusalem to Damascus that's about eight days of walking. Maybe maybe seven, taking the directest the most direct route quickly. So after seven days of walking from sunup to sundown, and then three days of blindness, neither eating nor drinking, what's the first thing that happens? Even before he eats anything, he's baptized. So, next page. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. 
All who heard him were astounded and said, Is not this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who call upon his name and came here expressly to take them back in chains to the chief priests? But Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Messiah. After a long time had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Now, before we continue on there, there more than likely is, is a break. Um, and this is where, including St. Paul's own account of his conversion, which is in Galatians, is helpful. So let's switch over. When God, who from my mother's womb, had set me apart and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Rather, I went into Arabia, and then returned to Damascus. So, there's a good bit of debate among St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, other fathers of the church, about what exactly, um, what exactly um, transpired and in what order and, and, and for what purpose. So it, it seems as though, um, continuing, on, continuing on Acts 9, where there was an attempt on St. Paul's life, isn't the isn't the isn't the proper sequence that there's a, there's a, there's an elapse of time there because he went right after this happened he went into Arabia and then came back to Damascus now obviously he's eating in Damascus I doubt he you know went to Taco Bell on the way out of the gate <laughs> had to have been there for at least a little bit of time which is why the end of of verse 19 there at the top of the page is a significant. Statement: He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and so his 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 conversion was immediately followed by some days in Damascus and then Arabia, um, and then back to a long period of time in Damascus. <clears throat> so it would seem. Um, so let's continue on. Um, after a long time had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Now they were keeping watch on the gates day and night so as to kill him, but the disciples took him one night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And now, back to Jerusalem. Um, but first, Galatians 11, or Galatians 1, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas. Kephas, and remained with him for 15 days. So, from the conversion to back in Jerusalem is three years. When we're reading, when we're hearing this reading at Mass, it sounds like he's blinded, he goes into Damascus, he's, his sight is restored, and he goes to Jerusalem and meets with Peter. That's not because the reading is misleading. It's just because we haven't put the whole picture together. We haven't added all the pieces to the puzzle after three years. Now remember the way time is accounted. Three years doesn't necessarily mean 365 days times three. That's not necessarily an elapse of that length. But it at least means 
portions of three years. One entire year plus a portion of the year before and a portion of the year later. You know, that's how we count time in order to get to the resurrection being on the third day. Right? That certainly was not 72 hours after the death. But it was on the third day. He died on day one. The next day was Holy Saturday. And day three, he rose from the dead on the third day. Not necessarily 72 hours. Um, remember, they didn't have stopwatches. <laughs> no. um, nevertheless, that's a long period of time. <clears throat> we could say at least a year and a half. From a year and a half to less than three years, he was either in Damascus or in Arabia, back in Damascus. And there's very little accounting um, for, for what took place, for what he was doing during that time. So he's back in Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And starting in the left column now, verse 27. Then Barnabas took charge of him, charge of him and brought him to the apostles. And he reported to them how on the way he had seen the Lord and that he had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Um, well, we also have to include here what Paul himself says in Galatians. I went up to confer with Peter and remained with him for 15 days. That's, that's not a small period of time. You know, you know what they say about guests and fish. They both stink after three days. Right? So 15 days, that's more than just a cordial visit. That's more than just uh, I came to, um, you know, to pay respect to you. That's, that's, a, that's a long visit. But I did not see any other of the apostles, only James, the brother of the Lord. Um, and then he adds, as to what I'm writing to you, behold, before God I'm not lying. So here Barnabas, Barnabas is, we attribute to Barnabas the title apostle because of his work, but he wasn't one of the 12, then minus Judas, then plus, you know, Matthias. Um, so it's, um, it's not, not really that much of a conundrum. Not even Barnabas took him then um, to Peter. The disciples didn't want to have anything to do with him. I realized St. Paul hadn't been persecuting Christians for at least a year and a half, maybe three. And yet that's still how much he's feared. His Christians still didn't want to have anything to do with him. He moved about freely with them in Jerusalem and spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. He also spoke and debated with the Hellenists, with the Greeks, but they tried to kill him. So then we'll hop over to Acts 22. I fell into a trance, after a while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem at once, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I replied, Lord, they themselves know that from synagogue to synagogue I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I myself stood by giving my approval and keeping guard over the cloaks of his murderers. Then he said to me, Go, I shall send you far away to the Gentiles. And then Acts 9 concludes, When the brothers learned of this, that the Hellenists were trying to kill him, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him on his way to Tarsus. And then you can look at you know, the map of all of his journeys, all of you know, his three missionary journeys. And then his fourth trip to Rome. 
And then there is a history of St. Paul after Rome. The, the, the conditions and the length of time that he spent in Rome uh, leads... Um, I'm gonna, I can't say fathers, most commentators. I haven't, um, I haven't looked into what the fathers say about the possibility of, of Paul traveling west after Rome, but it may very well be that Paul uh, went to Rome and his first trial in Rome <coughs> resulted in his being uh, released. Um, and then it's, there's a very, very strong tradition that he traveled west to Spain. That had been a, a long... Uh, intention of this, a long desire of this. And then it was subsequently on his way back, uh, back into the East, that he was um, arrested and, and then executed. Um, what I want to draw to your attention is, is perhaps what's already percolating in your mind, which is that we had, we had always thought that St. Paul's conversion and preaching happened like that. You know, when we talk about conversions, when we talk about how we wish conversions happened, we think of it as instantaneous, and the first person we think of is St. Paul. And there's a degree to which that's true. The bright light and the vision and the voice of, of, of Christ... Um, changed him instantly. But consider though, not only are we dealing with someone who um, as Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas remark, was a, a, a thoroughly disciplined and consistent and faithful practice, practitioner of evil, who as soon as he converts still retains all of his human virtues. He still remains completely disciplined. He still remains completely obedient. It's just that now he knows whom to obey. It's not as though you have to go through the cycle of, you know, just being a kind of pathetic oaf and then a kind of a kind of sort of consistent believer and then a really faithful, devout, virtuous person. Now, the person who's the person who is consistently and 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 thoroughly. Um, obeying evil, when they convert, they became they become thoroughly and consistently virtuous. The natural virtues are natural virtues. Moreover, realize that St. Paul he knew Christianity inside and out. His passion was was not just arguing against these people, but persecuting them and killing them because of their mistakes. He, wasn't, he doesn't come across as someone who is just simply disgusted by them. But he went out of his way to get, to get letters to be able to travel over a week to be able to round up more of these people. This wasn't just someone who was just you know, vile and angry who just simply didn't want these people in his sight. He truly tried to eradicate it. And so he understood it. And it's not as though it's a totally different religion. These are people who had been Jews, or who still were Jews in one sense or another. Add to it another consideration, and, and this is part of how we have to understand what took place on Good Friday. 
if our Lord had not been God, or if Jesus of Nazareth were not God, after all the things he claimed to do, and all the statements he made about his identity and his age, he should have been executed. He, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be doing things that only God can do. Forgive sins, be older than Abraham, you know, destroy the temple and build it up, come down with angels at the end of time. If he's not God, he actually did deserve to die. It's not as though these people just simply hated him because he was nice or hated him because he did good things. Now, some people were... Uh, hated him on that level. But the reality is that the people who paid attention to him knew from the very beginning, from the first time he cured that paralytic saying, your sins are forgiven, and the people mumbled, and they, and, and they were disturbed. They weren't disturbed because, wow, that's cool. I wish he could do that to my uncle or my grandmother. No, they mumbled because he was saying things that only God is allowed to say. So it would have been right and good and worthy and religious and pious to execute him if he hadn't been God. But as much as it wasn't until after the resurrection that the apostles proclaim him God, St. Thomas actually is the first one who does so a week after the resurrection when he proclaims my Lord and my God, the apostles were convinced, St. Peter says, we know that you have the words of life. We know that you're the Christ. We know that you're the Messiah. We know that you're from heaven. Remember, that doesn't add up to we know that you are God. They didn't yet understand how all of this is going to make sense, but they were insistent. They knew that he was from heaven and that he's good. So as much as they couldn't account for the things that he did and said that only God could do, the apostles, um, the apostles knew that he wasn't evil. So it makes sense. As soon as St. Paul realizes Jesus is God, then, it all, then he realizes that he realizes everything. That's, that's all St. Paul needs to know. He already knows all about this thing. He knows what, what was claimed. He, 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 you know, St. Stephen, God, God loved the new deacon who preaches for an hour. You know, he, he, he pretty much covered everything right there in his one long, 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 long homily. He covered everything. <coughs> the difference is that Jesus really is God. And so in that sense, St. Paul's conversion was instantaneous. As soon as he realizes Jesus is in heaven, Jesus is God. And then, and then go back to, to um, what St. Paul does say in Damascus during those first few days. It's Acts 9, the left column. I don't have page numbers, I apologize. But verse 20. And he began at once. Remember, he stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus. And he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. That was Paul's first homily. 
That he knew. That that changed everything. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he under, <coughs> understood everything so quickly that he would have written the Roman Catechism. <coughs> but he did know this. Jesus should not have been killed. Jesus is the Son of God. <coughs> It, it's interesting, Monsignor Ronald Knox has a, has a beautiful, beautiful series of lectures on St. Paul. Um, let me see, when did he deliver it? Beautiful series. Um, in 1950, in Westminster Cathedral, Monsignor Ronald Knox, who was among the, the important converts to Catholicism uh, in the last hundred years. K-N-O-X. Um, he preached a whole series of weekly Lenten lectures on St. Paul in Westminster Cathedral. Um, and those are worth your attention. It was kind of tempting for me just to come and just read them verbatim, but that's not enough. Um, and he, he at one point remarks about how there's this, this difference between um, the writings of, of St. Paul and the writings of the Gospels. How St. Paul never quotes the Gospels. Um, except for maybe once. In no way is there an animosity or a tension or a friction. And actually, um, It's on the tip of my tongue, and I was I was just talking about it. Um, with someone. But at one point St. Paul is talking, I think this is First Corinthians, pretty sure it's First Corinthians. Um, he's he's referring to what I first preached to you, namely that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And it's clear, and, and that is what the Gospels are. The Gospels are a passion narrative with some introduction and an infancy narrative tacked on in the beginning. But especially when you read St. John's Gospel, St. John's Gospel is, by and large, all about Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. That's what it is. So St. Paul is preaching and his writing more than likely follows different, uh, different patterns. In the same way that... Um, uh, you know, after after a class or after a homily or after a, after some kind of talk, if someone has a question about it, or if you're following up, you don't just simply repeat verbatim what you just said. Explain it a different way, or you, or you expound on what you had just said. And nevertheless, so just because Saint Paul's corpus is does not borrow from the Gospels, shouldn't um, shouldn't draw us to lead us to the conclusion that there's a that there's a, a tension or any kind of difference between the two. And, and when St. Paul refers to how he preached when he first arrived in a, in a city, makes it seem as though that what he preached, his first preaching was basically what we would read in the Gospels. His writings uh, were, were uh, of a different genre. They were, you know, he, was, he was putting out fires and fixing problems and answering questions. 
And he makes it very clear, he states it several times in Galatians 1 um, and Philippians 3, that he was not taught the gospel by somebody else. He was taught the gospel directly by Christ. He says that several times. And so what I propose to you, without making conclusions about what we can't know, is that when St. Paul says he, he didn't go to Jerusalem for three years, when he conferred with the apostles, with St. Peter, basically, those three years, be it a year and a half or closer to three, uh, were the time when he um, didn't yet preach to the Gentiles because he says that he didn't preach to the Gentiles until after uh, his work in Jerusalem. Um, and that those, his time in the desert um, was a time to pray. His time in the desert was a time to reflect on what had just happened. In the same way that he had three days of blindness, either eating or drinking, uh, he certainly would have taken more than just three days to, to sort through this all, figure this all out. Now, he does immediately begin to preach in Damascus that Christ is the Son of God. But it's a very it's 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 a kind of preaching which is very different from uh, his other work, both in terms of um, the scope of what he says, um, and also in terms of his success. Saint Jerome was convinced that Saint Paul's preaching during this time of three years was, was minimal and unsuccessful, and that. He doesn't quite say it, but he's almost seeming to say that St. Paul's primary occupation during, the, during these three years was not, uh, was not preaching. That wasn't his primary activity. On the next page, underneath the, underneath the map, there are two, um, two short reflections by St. John Chrysostom and Venerable Bede about that chronology, about the three years, about the conversion, being in Damascus, being in Arabia, being in Damascus, being back in Damascus, being in Jerusalem. It was a, it was, it was a problem for them to figure out then, too, how, how to read Galatians and Acts of the Apostles in a way that makes sense. It wasn't immediately obvious to them, and, and they spent some time thinking about it and actually disagreeing with each other about it. Minimally, what you'll see is that from Paul's conversion to his first missionary journey is about a decade. So, to my you know to my young convert friends, um, I encourage you to keep learning and keep praying, and keep your enthusiasm, but realize that there's a great way in which all of this is going to come together even more fully. You do know Christ is God. You do know that the church is the true bride of Christ. And say that to everyone you can. But there's a whole um, great uh, vision of the reality of, of the entire faith that comes with, uh, that only comes with time. It only comes with time. And the reality of it is that those of us who have always been believers may never have really taken the time to just pray about this and just realize all of the different conclusions that these truths have. Um, whether working out logically all the logical consequences of these truths, 
the manner in which it changes then the way we see everything, the way we see time, the way we see each other, the way we understand uh, our purpose, our work, our own, our own efforts. And even after conferring with, with Peter, uh, there was still a great deal of time that transpired before he, um, um, before he embarked on his, on his, on his uh, long journeys. One last, one last thing, and uh, for this I'll have to refer to something that I did not give you, and that's um, uh, from the second chapter of Galatians. Because he goes on to say, um, 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 now I want you to know this is the end of chapter 1 of Galatians now I want you to know brothers that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin for I did not receive it from a human being nor was I taught it but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ then after 14 years, I again went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus all along also. I went up in accord with the revelation. I presented to them the gospel that I preached to the Gentiles. And then we know of this um, dilemma that was sorted out at the first council, at the council of Jerusalem. At the conclusion of this meeting with Peter and James and John, he says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised, for the one who worked in Peter for an apostle to the circumcised, worked also in me for the Gentiles. And when they recognized the grace bestowed upon me, James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas their right hands in partnership, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only we were to be mindful of the poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. So we can neither conclude animosity between Peter and Paul, nor even diffidence, um, but rather um, the certainty that, that they have been entrusted with the one gospel for all the world. And the only manner in which that apostolate, that mission, can take shape is in partnership, is in obedience to is in obedience to um, to Christ through the church. As much as Paul will say forthrightly, I, I talked to Peter face to face about about how he was kind of confusing people by you know what tables he was eating at and and what he seemed to be uh, the confusion he seemed to be sowing. But this this. Um, hand clasp of partnership um, is something not to be um, not to be under underestimated, especially when we realize that the, the 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 temptation there is among those who want to exclude the the importance of the church, the temptation to see in Peter's conversion and in his time alone and in his preaching and his insisting on having not been taught by anybody, that it's possible to be a Christian without meeting the church. And in no way would Paul want us to, to, 
to come away with that impression, just read what he says about the church in his own epistles, that it's the bulwark and the foundation of faith, the bulwark of truth, um, about how the authority doesn't come from a personality, the authority comes from Christ, and if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to what has been preached to them, anathema, sith, let him be accursed. So it's critical that we understand the humility, too, of Peter, or rather the humility of Paul, to go to Jerusalem, to spend 15 days with Peter, to go back to Jerusalem again, to make sure that what he's preaching is acceptable, that it conforms to what Christ taught them as well. And then we'll have, especially when we see how those who would want to exclude the necessity of the church... Um, be they Christians in a formal sense or in an informal sense, will realize then why the church, why the Catholic Church is insistent on honoring Peter and Paul always at the same time and with each other. So this last page that I just condensed and left only in Latin is it's sufficient just to point out a few little details. There's a feature in the old mass where you might have one, two, or, or three feast days all commemorated at the same Mass. You know how nowadays, uh, what was a good example? Um, uh, a few days ago, last week, I think it was St. Jerome and Giuliani and St. Agatha, maybe, on the same day. I'm not sure, I think. And so when, 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 we're, when we're celebrating um, the new Mass, you have to choose, am I going to do the Mass of St. Agatha, or am I going to do the, you know, am I going to offer the Mass of St. Jerome and Liliani? In the old Mass, all you did was, well, you do the most important Mass, and then you just tack on the extra prayers from the other days, you know? So my, my great feast day is July 25th, the feast of my patron saints, St. Christopher and St. James, my first and middle name. They have the same feast day. Well, in the old Mass... You say the prayers of St. James, and then right after that you say the prayers of St. Christopher, and you just keep on going with the Mass. When you get to the offertory, or the secret, again, you do the, the, the secret of St. James, and the secret of St. Christopher. After communion, you just do, you do both prayers, one right after the other. You don't have to do one Mass or a different Mass. Every time the Church honors either St. Peter or St. Paul, the other one is always commemorated, without exception. So you can just um, go on. You all know Latin, actually. You were born in Latin. <laughs> My Latin teacher would always say, dogs understood this. <laughs> right. So, so Jan or rather, what's coming up on Friday, the, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. Uh, in the Old Mass is the oration. You can see God who... Uh, by uh, Blessed Peter the Apostle. And then right after that, the next oration is um, uh, in commemoration of St. Paul. Same thing at the secret. The secret of mention of St. Peter, and then the secret of St. Paul. And then after communion, what we now call the, the, the post-communion prayer, or the prayer of communion, uh, post-communion prayer of St. Peter, and then the post-communion prayer of St. Paul. When you get to even the votive mass of St. Peter, uh, in the top right corner, Misa Votiva Sancti Peter the Apostolate, 
It just it's just the vote of mass. It's not even a feast day. I mean, can't St. Peter just have his own vote of mass <laughs> without St. Paul coming along too? No, at the vote of mass of St. Peter, the oration of St. Peter, then the oration of St. Paul. The secret of St. Peter, the secret of St. Paul. The post-communion of St. Peter, the post-communion of St. Paul. And the same thing too when we celebrate the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. Right after his oration, the collect or the opening prayer is, is one for St. Peter. Right after the secret, the prayer over the gifts of St. Paul is the one for St. Peter. Same thing after communion. Interestingly enough, for the feast of St. Peter and Paul on June 29th, it had been the Roman custom for the Pope to offer Mass in both basilicas. It's a long distance to walk. Now, it wasn't the subway, but even the subway now doesn't get you anywhere close to the Basilica of St. Paul inside the walls. So after several, uh, after a great length of time of, of the Pope offering Mass in the Basilica of St. Peter, and later in the day offering Mass in the Basilica of St. Paul, they decided, basta, enough of that. So they just added a commemoration of St. Paul for the next day so that there was only one, ma one papal mass each day on the 29th of June in St. Peter's, on the 30th of June at St. Uh, Paul. And that still is stuck in the calendar, um, even though uh, we have the internal combustion engine, but that's okay. <laughs> what I want to point out, though, is, is this little interesting detail. The, 30th of the commemoration for St. Paul on the 30th of June has these double orations. Um, St. Paul and then St. Peter the next day, just to make sure that St. Paul's commemoration isn't exclusive of St. Peter. But for June 29th, which is the solemnity of St. Peter and Paul, June 29th, the prayers, um, except for the very first line of the first prayer, don't make mention of them. Just refers to them as friends. In the offertory antiphon especially, which I um, didn't print just for the sake of it fitting everything on the same space. Monsignor Ronald Knox comments on this. He says he wants to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to slip into a false sense of rivalry, of choosing between one or the other, of thinking that there's a Pauline way and a Petrine way. They're, they, they're, they're simply together. Um, there's no one or the other. There's only both. Um, so this Friday, um, when you go to Mass and it's the chair of St. Peter and there won't be a mention of St. Paul, you'll still know that whenever we honor Peter, we still honor Paul. Thank you.